Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 4, HTML5 Madness, recorded October 5th, 2010, with special guests John Walters from Aachen, Germany, Jeremy Keith from Brighton, England, and Lindsay Ogden from Fort Collins, Colorado. A quick production note on this, we do apologize for the subpar quality of the sound on this episode. We were experimenting with a new recording technique, and, well, we won't be doing that again. With that said, enjoy the episode. It's the web design world's most lovable podcast, Einstein und Sock Monkey. <laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all of this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. My name is Steve Warren, and I'm a user experience designer. And I'm your co-host, Ron Zazadinsky, and I'm a website developer. And uh, Walters as a guest, and I'm a usability engineer and a tech communicator. And we're glad to have John on again for the second time. Uh, he was on episode two, and then um, now on episode four. We are so honored. Oh, oh. And hopefully <laughs> we can continue doing this once in a while via Skype or whatever. Yes, John will be returning to Germany soon. So, yeah, when are you going back? Um, not, not that we want you to go back. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll keep in touch. You won't get rid of me. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and go on with the news. Okay, the first item I have for today is um, MailChimp has an upgrade. And MailChimp is an email list service that you can use to send out email newsletters to your clients and prospects. And um, they... Now allow you to have, uh, it's free if you have an email list of a thousand users or less. Uh, so that's pretty cool. cool. And how many, how many do they let you send? Uh, and they also doubled, so that's double by the way from what their free limit used to be of 500. And then they also doubled the limit of how many emails you can send per month from 3,000 to 6,000. So um, you could potentially send to the whole list six times in a month for free. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty impressive. And there's a lot of other nice features about MailChimp. Uh, one of the great ones for us as web designers is that we can design a custom email newsletter for a client. And within MailChimp, um, you can specify editable areas by inserting MailChimp tags, MailChimp markup, mm-hmm. and then clients can edit just that content, swap out just the photos you say are editable. And so it makes it very usable for them to reuse a template that you design once. Uh, and many of the mail services don't have that capability. Um, many of them, you can upload a custom email, HTML email, but there's no way for the client to edit it without getting into the HTML. Right. So there's a couple others that do this, but MailChimp is one, and it does it really well. Cool. I've never used any of these services, so how, how do you make sure that your emails actually get through? Do, do they send you some kind of a log if emails bounce? Uh, yes, you can... They don't send a log, but you can log in and see the stats, and it'll show you how many are bouncing, how many unsubscribes you've had, and that kind of a thing. So, okay. yeah, they handle all that pretty automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, not, I've heard a lot of good things about MailChimp, but I've not actually used I've used Campaign Monitor, mm-hmm. and they have really good, really fancy, pretty stats in the back end. You can see 
who opened the email, when they opened it, how many times they opened it, if you want to get really big brother about the mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people, when I tell people that the email programs can do this, they kind of get a little bit freaked out. <laughs> but it's useful stuff for the person sending the email, um, but you know, if you don't want to uh, be tracked, just don't show the images. Because they track, there's like a single pixel image right. that they track off right. of in the email. So. Right. And MailChimp has good stats as well. Most yeah. of them do these days. Mm -hmm. Most yeah. of the services. Cool. Well, um, I was really excited. This past week, uh, a new book has been released um, called Undercover User Experience Design. And it's uh, undercoverux.com is the website. It's written by James Box and Kenneth Bowles, both of Clear Left in Brighton. And we just uh, are going to have an interview today with Jeremy Keith, their co-worker at Clear Left. And um, these guys just keep churning out great books. And I've ordered my copy. don't have it yet. Mm -hmm. But um, it's the – I'll just read the synopsis that they have on their website. It says, Undercover User Experience Design is a pragmatic guide from the front lines giving frank advice on making UX work in real companies with real problems. Readers will learn how to fit research, generating ideas, prototyping, and testing into their daily workflow, and how to design good user experiences under the all-too-common constraints of time, budget, and culture. And so this is not only good for folks in like a web design company or an independent UX person, but someone who, like me, now works for a big, giant company who I, I'm a user experience designer in-house. And it's always helpful to try to get more people to think that you are worth the money they pay you. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Job security. Constantly lobby for that. Right, yeah. So, And I, I'm really excited about it. These guys are both really good. I've heard Kenneth speak before. Oh, cool. Um, not in person, I should say. Uh -huh. But... Um, and I, I did think his name was Senid. When I was, uh, <laughs> That's what I would have guessed. Yeah, it's it's C-E-N-N-Y-D-D, but the Welsh say Kenneth, believe it or not. So anyway, um, they both have a lot of good stuff to say. I'm really excited to, to read the book. Awesome. Sounds cool. So well, I found a news item that is not really related to classical design and the, the stuff that we talk about, but... Um, I just like the, the attitude that the people have that started this, and it's a video on Vimeo, and it's about a homemade spacecraft. So cool. sounds pretty awesome, it but does. it's unmanned. It's kind of unspectacular when you see it, but the <laughs> results are really spectacular. It's like a styrofoam box with an HD camera inside, an iPhone 4 for tracking the device when it comes back to Earth. And the concept is that it's being launched attached to a weather balloon, and because the atmospheric pressure is, is highly reduced at, uh, in the uh, upper stratosphere, the, the balloon will eventually burst. And it did, so the device came back to mm -hmm. Earth so mm -hmm. it could download the video from the camera. And it actually went up as high as 17 miles. Wow. And when it came back to Earth, it uh, reached a speed of 150 miles an hour, even <laughs> though, the, even though wow. the parachute was deployed. Wow. And the, the imagery is absolutely And stunning. the iPhone 4 survived. <laughs> the iPhone 4 survived. I mean, all the devices. The the only little little blotch on on that uh, in that project was that the battery and the camera uh, kind of folded up about two minutes before actual touchdown. So that was kind oh. of a bummer. Oh, but they um, the actual touchdown <clears throat> video. Exactly. Uh. But the, the the video that they did shoot was is is totally awesome, and and you should definitely check it out. I mean, it's 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 this can do attitude and this. Kind of maker movement that's that's mm -hmm. growing pretty big right now, 
And uh, if you want to see how that worked out, you go to Vimeo.com, it's V-I-M-E-O.com, slash 15091562, and we'll add that to the show notes so it's a bit yeah. easier to find. And while we were talking about that earlier, um, I did look up a quick Google search on, has an airplane ever collided with a weather balloon? That's because, a very good this is point. how the National Weather Service launches uh-huh. the balloons all the time. And, yeah. and, and it's the same technique. They, they go up and they wait till they, you know, they burst at altitude and then mm-hmm. the package comes back down. Oh, really? Um, yep. That's the standard thing. They launch <laughs> oh, yeah. 92 locations across the U.S. Really? several times a day. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff flying around out there. But um, according to this this article, which was just from March of this year, a quick search of the FAA database doesn't show any any recorded collisions of airplanes and weather balloons, which is pretty surprising. I mean, think how big are those suckers anyway? Well, they start out fairly small, just a few feet in diameter, but they grow to quite large at at high altitude. Okay. I don't know if they're Pressure. ten or twenty feet. Yeah, but they're quite large diameter, huh? Ten or more, maybe a dozen feet wide uh, diameter up there, something like that. Well, this this spacecraft thing sounds a little more useful than like the uh, balloon boy thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna mention that. <laughs> I should probably not remind people that that was exactly. here. But anyway, they, I, I did hear that they have moved out of town. Yes, so I they have. They have. Well. Yes. Oh, interesting. I don't really care where. So they're running away from their property. Like, out yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the next news item I have relates to the mobile world. So I'm always interested in mobile stats because as web designers, user experience designers, you know, the usage of these devices is growing rapidly, and uh, at some point, well, you know, the majority of internet-connected devices will be mobile devices. Um, in fact, I've heard some stats that that could be about four years out, 2014 or so. That So anyway, it's an important market for us to be paying attention to and designing for. And uh, Nielsen just released some stats today on um, market share by platform through 20, August of 2010, and... Top billing is still the BlackBerry OS at 31%, uh, but they're falling, slowly declining. Right in the middle is the uh, Apple iOS and uh, iPhones specifically, and iPhones are at 28%. They seem to bounce around between 28, 29%, 27% month to month, so hmm. pretty steady on the iPhone. Um, but what's coming up is Android. So Android is up to 19%, but growing steadily actually about a percent or two per month every month. So, have you ever used an Android phone? I haven't. I just very cursory. I feel like I ought to. Kathy has one and I've played with hers a little bit, but um, um, you know, I've used the Apple stuff for so long that uh, the iPhone is so intuitive that yeah. you have to think a little more, but just because the interface is different. I'm sure you so, get used to it. But. Yeah. I don't know. I like the iPhone interface. It just seems so integrated <laughs> and clean, but, yeah. but uh, I don't have really enough experience to argue one way or the other. So anyway, I thought, just thought that was interesting of where those platforms are, at least in the U- U.S. Yeah. market. Um, but in sales, current sales, um, Android is outpacing all the others by a lot. So uh, in the last six months, 32% of smartphone sales in the U.S. were um, Android, uh, compared with 25% for both BlackBerry and Apple, so uh, iPhones. So anyway, mm-hmm. BlackBerry or Android is gaining gaining quickly if they keep up that pace. And the curve is inflecting upwards, so, <laughs> on the uh, percentage of sales in the last six months. Did they break out any of those different um, manufacturers' versions of Android? Because I, I haven't used a, an Android phone myself yet, but what I keep reading is that the manufacturers kind of modify the user interface and something 
You know, you, you cannot really, apparently, you cannot really be sure that if you buy an Android phone that it has all the features that it could possibly have. Right, it does vary. So, um, I mean, even just from a from a user's point of view, it would be interesting to see if there's, you know, if, if the full-featured Android version is sold more than a limited one mm-hmm. based on the device that they sell. Mm-hmm. And also, I read a really funny comment today by uh, Gruber's Darren Fireball website that somebody said, uh, how can Android outsell the iPhone or the BlackBerry OS? It's free software. <laughs> and he said, you have to compare the devices. That's why I'm asking yeah. because apparently the devices do have different feature sets. All right, I've heard that as well. Different manufacturers can enable different feature sets mm-hmm. and have slightly different versions of Android OS depending on you know what was available um, when they released the, right. the device. And there's right. upgrades as you go, but <clears throat> nothing is kept. You know, mm-hmm. The whole fleet of Android is not kept even. And the other mobile-related uh, news item I have today is um, Google Goggles has been a feature on the Android Google app for uh, a while now, and it just was released for the iPhone today, uh, October 5th. Mm. So uh, Google Goggles is kind of fun. Basically, what you do is you launch the, uh, the Google app from your iPhone, which you do have to get off the uh, iTunes store. It's not the one that comes with the phone. It's a separate Google app. And um, you just do a search. If you look on the search page... There's the text field, and then there's a little camera button now next to it that's new. And you tap on the camera button, it turns on your camera, and then you just point your camera at what you want to image. Could be a landmark, could be a book cover, uh, could be a barcode, mm-hmm. and then basically it will immediately uh, do a Google search based on the image, and then return information about about that image. Wow! So I tried it on a book cover, and it works really well. Came right back with the title of the book. Tap on that, and then it's got links to buy it on Amazon or all the information about the book. And um, anyway, that could be fun. really dangerous for somebody like Barnes and Noble. <laughs> <laughs> you go in and just point your your phone at the shelf, right? Yeah, and uh, buy it on Amazon for cheaper. <laughs> <clears throat> Do they use the GPS coordinates at all? I mean, for landmarks, because that would kind of help them improve the search. That's a really good question. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously for landmarks that would really help, but for the other categories, it wouldn't make much difference. For mm-hmm. you know, for book covers or barcodes or you know, wine bottle labels, it works on all those things. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it would also be interesting to read the new updated privacy statement that they have. What they will do with the photos? Will they store them to optimize the algorithms? Yeah, they actually there's an opt-in, opt-out when you first launch it the first time. Oh, so uh-huh. I declined to be tracked. But if you allow it to track, then you apparently you can pull up a history of all the images you shot, so you can see in the past yourself. You know what you take mm-hmm. images of. But so you declined to be tracked. I, mean, I declined to be tracked. <laughs> considering, <laughs> considering Eric Schmidt's recent comments on privacy, probably that button doesn't do anything. Uh, <laughs> well, the fact yeah, that you check in on Foursquare every place you go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It doesn't much matter. But <laughs> exactly. A little bit less data out there about me. <laughs> well, at the risk of being too uh, mobile centric here, I have a. Uh, a blog post I read recently called Behind the... Uh, well, the, the blog is BehindTheCurtain.us, and it's um, my first week with the iPhone. It was written a few months ago, but I thought it was an amazing example of how accessibility can really change someone's life, done, accessibility done well. And the guy who, wrote, who writes this blog is actually blind, and he got the, the iPhone, and I, I have not actually played around with the iPhone's accessibility features at all. Have you guys... Because I, 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 I guess it'll speak. I mean, it has voice recognition, so you can yeah, say it's call them all that, over. Right. But, um, that's it. But and it ha- apparently, it'll actually speak the names of the apps on the, the page and so forth. 
Anyway, but the what he really the, the the piece that it really got me is that he talks about multiple different kinds of accessible applications that he downloaded, but there's this one specifically called Color Identifier, and it actually um, <clears throat> it, it identifies the colors that the the iPhone camera is picking up as a hexadecimal. And then it has all these names like atomic orange, hippie green. Oh, I don't know what that means. Um, uh, opium and cosmic, stuff like that. Anyway, um, so you can point this. It's it's designed for web designers originally. So you can, like if your client says, I want my website the color of that brick wall. You just hold it up there. It gives you a hex number and you put that on the website. And um, But what he uses it for is he points it at things in the world to see what colors they are, because he can see mm-hmm. light sources but not color, oh. and it's just it's great. You'll, you'll have to read it. The very last paragraph, especially talking about looking at the sky as the sunset and finding his pumpkin plants in the backyard by finding the orange, you know. So uh, I, I really recommend reading it, and it really made me start thinking about how important accessibility is in web design in general, mm-hmm. and how we need to be paying attention to that because. There are a lot of folks out there who can't see the world or hear the way you know that many of us can, and it's it's really irresponsible to not try to build some sort of accessibility into your website. You don't have to have it speak to everybody, but that's what screen readers are for. But make it simple and usable at least. Mm-hmm. Definitely, sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea to use a, an iPhone as what some refer to as an assistive device mm-hmm. for people that have some kind of handicap. Um, I wish that there was more awareness for that, not just in terms of making websites accessible, but realizing that different people have different needs. Right. So the, when you described this, how he sort of uses the iPhone to see colors, quote unquote, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have like an augmented reality app that doesn't just show labels for restaurants, but you just point it at something and it says the restaurant you're looking for is two steps ahead mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, it's I think it's all about awareness because very often people don't have a, you know, they, they don't enjoy a mind share with that kind of stuff that they really don't think about other people having problems using their products right. in general. So. I think that story is great because it, it really provides an inside view of how just a, a very simple application can provide so much more quality of life for that one person. Yeah. So I hope that finds a lot of readers. You eventually have seen iPhones. Seen <laughs> dogs. <Seeing> iPhones. <laughs> Pun intended. Sorry. Register that domain now. Yeah. Did <laughs> you one more? Uh, yeah, another news item. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid it also has to do with mobile, so apologies oh. for that. I trust that you guys will cover different things. <laughs> <next time. laughs> and um, it's, you know, the, the thing that, that um, really excited me about this product is that it's very, very simple. And its, it's design is so clean. So for anyone who is OCD about design like we are, mm-hmm. this is just a, a perfectly, thoroughly thought through product. And it's mm-hmm. called the Glyph. And it's being described as a tripod adapter for an iPhone 4, but also as a kickstand. So it's, it's difficult to describe, but you just sort of clip it onto the iPhone and it, the, the fit is, is snug enough so that you can use it upside down as a tripod adapter with like a gorilla pod and maybe wrap yeah. it around a tree or something. Um, well, rather a branch, not the tree stump. I, I haven't seen a, a gorilla pod uh, that is that big yet. <laughs> um, but... Um, the, the, the cool thing about this is that there are two people behind this product. 
um, a hardware and software developer and a designer. And like a lot of, of really good software, apparently they built this device for themselves and designed it mm -hmm. so that it would meet their own very special requirements and expectations in terms of, of maybe even beauty. Um, and because they don't have a big company behind them, it's actually being launched as a Kickstarter project so that you can pledge to support the project mm. and buy the device that way so that they can finance the project before they actually um, are invested with their own money. Mm. And I, should, I think if, if you have an iPhone 4, even if you don't, I don't have one yet and I still want to buy that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I'm not being paid. I'm just a, a potentially happy customer in this. You should definitely check it out. It's at theglyph.com. It's T-H-E glif com, and they also have a nice movie to demonstrate how that thing works really cool yeah, yeah really cool i came across this actually last night and i almost huh. picked it as a news item wow. you're lucky <laughs> <laughs> but well we covered it that's the bottom what, what blew me away most the, the design is is like you said it's dead simple and very very useful in multiple uh instances but they were looking for ten thousand dollars a little video on there on kickstarter.com um, if you go to the glyph, there's a link to it, but they're looking for $10,000. And as of October 3rd, they had maybe five pledges like mm -hmm. for a hundred bucks total. Cause if you pledge 20 bucks, they'll send you a glyph when they right. get them, get them made. And then, um, John Gruber picked it up. Right. And then the old, the unofficial Apple weblog picked it up. Oh wow. And I looked and right now they're sitting at $51,000. <gasps> wow. That's awesome. So, and I looked. I looked at it last night, and it was at twenty thousand. Mm -hmm. Wow! And so, and they they have a little response video of, of how flabbergasted they are <laughs> at the response. So I just thought it was neat. It's a neat. First of all, it's a neat design, but it's also a neat story of how um, they're just kind of a like Kickstarter, you know, bootstrap mentality and you know, starting that way. It's and how fast that happens. But that is also a great example for the appeal of nicely designed things. Exactly. Because very often people say, oh, you know, it's, it's good enough if it just barely works. <laughs> and they try to sell it and people kind of buy it because they don't have an alternative. Right. And if you just look at the, the detail on this thing and how simple it is, just like you said, it's, it's not intricate and, and it works so well. So, yeah, maybe more companies would be, you know, should, should be a bit braver about what they what they do a bit more bold design and maybe that's yeah. a great maybe. success story it would even make marketers happy <laughs> success story so our feature this week is we um uh, is part of our book club and the first book that we discussed as part of this podcast is uh, html5 for designers written by jeremy keith and also of brighton incidentally well you mentioned that earlier yeah um so the idea was that we picked a book, we pick it ahead of time so people have a chance to read it and then give us comments on the blog or questions, and our goal was to uh, uh, contact the author and see if we could get the author on the phone with us while we were discussing the book. And uh, Jeremy uh, was very gracious and was uh, willing to, to, um, to join us via Skype, and so we chatted with him today about HTML5 for designers. So it's a great book. Uh, it condenses an incredible amount of material about HTML5 into 88 pages or something fairly yeah. short and um, incredibly packed with useful information, but not hard to read. I mean, no, it's a good, it's an easy read. Yeah, it's an amazingly good, balanced book. And we had um, Lindsay Ogden on with us mm -hmm. for, that, for the interview as well. Exactly. So she was, uh, Lindsay is one of our listeners. Um, she does happen to live here in Fort Collins, but... She posted a comment about the uh, the book on our blog, and so uh, 
she was the winner of uh, the invited guest. And that was a lot of fun to have Lindsay with us while we uh, chatted with Jeremy. Cool. Let's listen to the interview. Okay, well, uh, hello, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Hello, Ron. It's so good to have you. So we have with us as our guest, Jeremy Keith, who has written the book HTML5 for Web Designers. And uh, our plan is to discuss the book, but first let's introduce who's here on our end. So I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast, Ron Zazadinsky, and I run a website design company called CodeGeek.net, and we do uh, standards-based HTML and CSS as part of what we do. And um, I'm Steve Martin, the other host for The Thing, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a user for experience the thing, yeah, for The Thing. <laughs> this thing we do, um, I'm a user experience designer, and part-time independent, part-time for a um, mega corporation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. Which one is Einstein and which one is Soft Monkey? That's a good question. I've you'll been have... asking that and they're not answering. <laughs> so you'll have to see if you can figure it out <laughs> by the okay. time it's over. And Lindsay? My name is Lindsay Ogden. I run Five Rings Web Design and I specialize in Drupal. So that's our background, and um, well, Jeremy, we, we know that you're an author and uh, an HTML and CSS writer. Um, and and so, JavaScript. And JavaScript, that's correct. Yeah. So we know you've written two books before, uh, Dom Scripting, and then uh, I think it was Bulletproof Ajax. That's right, yeah. So how is writing this book, how is the experience of writing this book, HTML5 for web designers, different from, from that one, from those other books? Oops. It was very different because it wasn't being published through a sort of traditional publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole process of doing it was much, well, nicer, frankly. It was basically it was just like a couple of friends getting together and deciding to do a book. It was kind of what it felt like because it was such a small team with uh, a book apart. So it's basically Jeffrey. Jeffrey Zeldman is the, the head honcho. Uh, Jason Santamaria is doing the, the design of the book and uh, Mandy Brown doing the editing, and, and that was pretty much it. So it, it was all nice and intimate and, you know, just doing things over Basecamp. It was quite different oh. to the previous two books where there were style guides from the publishing house and there were templates you had to use. And, uh, you know, it's it a bit more, I mean, it has to be like that with a big publishing house, I guess. Sure. But uh, this, this felt a, a lot nicer to do. And the fact that it's uh, short, by design, it was also nice. It didn't have this huge uh, pressure on me to deliver some big tome. Right. Uh, and that, that's, it was definitely a feature, not a bug. That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering about that, actually, because one of the strengths of the book, uh, there are many, but one is that it is so concise. How did you manage to boil it down so, so efficiently? I mean, like when I'm preparing presentations... Uh, often the shorter the presentation, the harder the preparation is. So it seems like this might have been harder than easier. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how my books have changed over time, they've gotten shorter and shorter every time. (laughs) So the first there was DOM scripting, that was a few hundred pages long, and then Bulletproof Ajax was maybe half the size of that, and then uh, HTML5 web designers is even less than half the size of that again. And I I, I know exactly what you mean about it being hard to distill it down. um, You know, so that phrase... Some attribute to Mark Twain is that you know if I had more time I would have written you a shorter letter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. If the editing is actually the hard part, but uh, but I don't know. I I, I tried. It, it was kind of good to be able to just strip everything down and not have to expand on every little point and just uh, keep it fairly minimal. 
I was kind of curious how long it took to write the thing because when you're dealing with, especially web technologies, it it's and 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 with this one a standard that's not even finished yet. How do you? How long did it take? And how did you keep up on things? Were you changing things at the very last minute as the the committee changed well, things or what? The actual writing process didn't take that long at all. Um, I can't quite remember. Maybe maybe two months, maybe two or three months total for the writing. It was actually finished with the writing by last Christmas. Um, but the publishing took a bit longer because it was the first book that event, uh, book apart publishing. Right. They had to figure out distribution, they had to figure out how things work. So that did take uh, a bit longer than anticipated. I mean, originally we were hoping to have it out back in March, but that, that date passed and so on. But as it turned out, it was kind of good that the date got pushed back a bit because, yes, there were things that uh, needed changing right up until the last minute. So, um, I mean, fairly you know, slight technical things, but they would have been exactly the kind of thing that if uh, if I hadn't had a chance to change them, I would, I would be kicking myself about. Um, some of it was to do with browsers getting um, new versions released where the um, interfaces changed. So, for example, the way that they rendered um, some of the new form elements in HTML5 changed as I was writing the book. Um, sometimes it was the spec itself. There were slight differences, like with the audio and video, how it handled... Uh, preloading and buffering, that changed. Uh, and then there was some stuff in the spec that I basically just didn't touch with a 10-foot barge pole because <laughs> it was in flux. and It was pretty clear that this stuff was in flux, so I just didn't even mention it. So in amongst all these new elements and talking about these new semantic elements, I don't mention uh, figure and I don't mention details. Okay. Because at the time I was writing it, there was going back and forth into it was whether they'd even make it into the spec. And if they do make it into the spec... How do you specify the title of a figure or the title of a, of a details element? So I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. Right. That makes sense. Um, well, for the, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just, so there's so many aspects to this book. You know, there's many, many. It, it covers so much in such a short amount of time that we could easily talk for hours about it. But uh, in the interest of time, we have a couple specific areas that we were um, uh, interested to uh, to discuss with you. Okay. Um, so I guess I'll start. Uh, so one was, and this is kind of a big one in my mind, is the new semantic tags. Um, and not even so much those, well, you know, the article and section tags. But the thing that I find really interesting about the new spec for HTML5 is that you no longer are, are limited to just one H1 tag on a page. Um, you know, as you pointed out, you can now have, if you wanted to, you could structure it so you have an H1 tag within each section. Um, I guess the advantage well, would be your... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, just to, just to make it clear, you were never limited to just one H1 element on a page. That's more common practice. It seems to have grown up because of um, SEO... Right, dog, search engine uh, optimization. Right. Right. But there's nothing in any version of HTML that ever said there could only be one H1 in a page. The only element that you're allowed to use once in a page is the title element. Okay. So I, I tend to think of the title element as being like an H0. That's the go. real you know, bottom level heading. But then H1s, you could actually always use more than H1. In some situations, some existing use cases, it's perfectly correct to use more than H1 in a page, more than one H1 on a page. And um, I know there might be some people saying, oh, my God, Google's going to penalize you and blacklist you. <laughs> the truth is it's never actually mattered that much. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Um, using well Structured headings matters a lot, but just the fact that you're using headings at all is what really counts to Google, and it doesn't really 
I mean, there might be slight uh, variances in whether you use 1H1 versus 2H1s, whatever, right. but it's never actually been the big deal that it's kind of been made out to be. Interesting. Do you have any idea or evidence if Google is starting to, you know, parse HTML5 in appropriate fashions or any thoughts on that? I don't have any evidence. Um, somebody from Google that was on one of the HTML5 mailing lists did mention a little while ago that, you know, they will they will keep their algorithms updated, but they always keep their algorithms updated. I mean, they're constantly tweaking um, the, their search algorithms and how they parse things. Um, and I mean, the fact that Ian Hickson, the editor of the HTML5 spec, works at Google has, uh-huh. uh, you know, a pretty good sign as well. So um, I would say it's almost almost certainly they will slightly tweak the, the algorithm to take that into account, um, maybe depending on the doc type you send. But I'm not sure it makes that much difference anyway to rankings when it comes down to it when it comes to you know search engine rankings at the end of the day it is about having good content um well-structured good content and the the fine-tuning of whether it's you know uh, using html5 elements or whether it's using um divs uh doesn't matter quite as much i think as people might okay think. Well, that's a fair that's a fair comment and interesting so it sounds like the bottom line is if you are doing SEO for your site, don't worry so much about uh, how many H1 tags or H2 tags you have. If you're marking up the content semantically and um, having quality content, that's those are the factors that are most important. Well, well okay, I'll go off on a bit of a rant here. I think, if doing, <laughs> I think if you're doing SEO for your site, you're doing it wrong to begin with. If you're thinking in those terms, thinking in terms of search engine optimization, that's a completely wrong perspective to come at it. What you need to be coming at it from is, is the perspective of uh, people optimization. Amen. So you've got people, people out there looking for content and you try and optimize your content for those people. Now, the handy sort of side effect of doing that is that it turns out that's exactly what Google is doing too, right? Mm-hmm. That when somebody types in a search query into Google, it's in its interest to return the most relevant uh, pages for that query. So Google practices this kind of user-centered or people-centered optimization so rather than optimizing for Google, which optimizes for people, it makes a lot more sense to just cut out the middleman and optimize for people. Right? So if you're thinking in terms of search engine optimization, I think it's, 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 it's kind of a, a narrow uh, approach to take. Whereas if you're thinking of optimizing for people, then it so happens that you will get search engine uh, optimization along for the ride. That's a great point. Makes sense. Oh, um, I was kind of curious about the uh, the canvas thing. As as design, a lot of our listeners are web designers, and I've done that's kind of how I started out was doing web design and moved into user experience design. Um, but there seems to be a lot of talk about canvas, specifically the video thing, um, and the fact that it, do you, do you see this becoming something that's going to slowly replace flash video, or uh, is it just going to be like another thing alongside? I mean. Get out your well, ball. There's, there's two separate things. Canvas is one element, and that's about drawing dynamic images. So, oh, the video is separate, right? Video is separate, but of course, a lot of flash, um, you know, flash objects that are in pages are there to draw dynamic things or to do games, for example. And Canvas does challenge that area of flash, the sort of gaming um, vector-based stuff. Um, well, not so much vector-based; it's pixel-based with Canvas. Um, okay. The weird thing is that there's 
there's other technology as well, SVG, which has been around for a while, which kind right. of does a similar thing. Although SVG is more is less about fast updates to the screen because SVG is very much vector based and canvas is pixel based. But both of them, uh, kind of together, do. I guess pose an alternative at the very least to a lot of the stuff that traditionally you would have to have used Flash for. Um, it seems over time recently anyway, there's been a lot of the things that traditionally you would have had to have used Flash, we've been able to kind of have more choices. So it used to be just to have a simple image gallery where you had the pictures fading from one picture mm-hmm. to another. You had to use Flash. Right. Now in recent years with, with jQuery and, and, and with you know, the opacity and CSS and things like this, um, you have the choice. You can use JavaScript. You can use uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So I see, I see that happening where people don't have more of a choice about how they want to do things. They can continue to do things uh, with Flash, but Flash probably won't be the only way of doing it. Whereas up till now, there's been certain things on the web where Flash was the only answer you, you had to doing it. Now you're going to have a few more choices. Right. Well, yeah, that's what I get for asking a technical question. <laughs> um, but as for the, and the video thing, this is, I mean, this, so when most people talk about this whole, you know, HTML5 versus Flash, they're not talking about all of HTML5, and they're not talking about all of Flash. Usually what they mean is video, right? They're talking right. about HTML5 video versus Flash video. So things, because as it stands, I guess the most predominant use of Flash these days is for video. Yeah. Things like Tube and Vimeo and all this stuff. And... Uh, you know, HTML5 video again is is an alternative, so you you could choose to do that. The nice thing about way that the way that the spec has been done is that you don't necessarily have to make the choice. You can provide both, because you can have your video element, and you say, here's the video, here's the source, and then whatever you put between the opening and closing video tags is the fallback content that will be displayed by browsers that don't understand HTML5 video. So you just put a flash movie there. Right. Or, or alternatively, you could do it the other way around because Flash is usually injected using the object element. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the object element, you put your Flash movie, and then between the opening and closing object tags, which is normally where you put the message saying, you know, you must download the latest version of uh, Flash, blah, 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 blah. Now you can put the HTML5 video. I mean, obviously, it's more work. You have to encode your video more than once, and that's a whole other um, story. But uh, it doesn't have to be a choice with video. It's one of the nice things. You can have your cake and eat it, too. You can serve up Flash video and HTML5 video. And I think... And same goes for audio as well. And I think probably you should be doing both. Like if you're only serving up video using HTML5 video element, you kind of, you know, um, shooting yourself in the foot, you should probably put the Flash fallback. But likewise, if you're only serving up video using Flash, you're going to be missing out some other segments of your audience, like people using devices that don't have Flash installed, like the iPad, the iPod, so on. So you don't have to necessarily choose with audio and video. You can you can serve up both at once in the HTML. Yeah, that's something I didn't realize until I read your book about HTML5 is the all the options for fallbacks. And, yeah, it's uh, kind of it's really a sort of a progressive enhancement approach which resonates yeah. with me. You know, because that's that's how I try to approach everything. It's this idea of progressive enhancement. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and along along the lines of Canvas, um, you talked about accessibility problems, which makes a lot of sense, especially if you got text going on there, which is essentially just a shape that looks like a letter. It's not actually a letter. Right. Um, 
Is there? You mentioned that there some folks are doing some work on accessibility improvements for Canvas. Is there any update on that? Do you know of? Or? Yeah, there has been. There's been some great work done by, I guess, a task force. You would call them. Um, I haven't been keeping a close eye on it, but I know that they're really, really smart people uh, in their working on it, and they occasionally send updates to the HTML5 list and how things are going. Um, the way it's looking, I don't quite grasp it myself, but there's some idea of being able to generate a sort of shadow DOM that mirrors what's going on in the canvas. I, I don't quite understand it myself, but definitely work being done there. And what happened was Canvas actually got split off from the HTML5 spec on the W3C side, so it's now its own separate specification. Or rather, not Canvas. The Canvas element is in HTML5, but the Canvas API, okay, uh, 2D API, is now a separate spec. And I actually think that's a good thing because the accessibility issue is a is a big issue and it needs to be solved. But at the same time, I wouldn't want that to hold up all of HTML5. So now that the fact that it's split into a separate spec means we could potentially carry on with getting HTML5 to uh, you know last call while still working on the Canvas API for longer than that if it takes longer. So I think it was a good move um, by the W3C to split it out into a separate spec. Mm-hmm. I don't think Ian Hickson was too happy about it, but I think it was a good move. <laughs> That makes sense. They keep pointing at me, wondering if I'm going to ask any questions. Um, <laughs> well, do you have any questions? Well, I have to say that what's really at, at the forefront of my mind about all of this is I don't want to increase my workload. I don't want to have to develop in HTML5 and in JavaScript. And um, I, just, I just want to know what your thoughts were about that. Well, the idea is not that you'd be developing in parallel. The idea is that you can just use the bits you want to use. There are certain things today where you can't quite rely on the HTML5 support, so you're going to have to keep doing it in JavaScript, but it's things that you would have to do in JavaScript anyway. So a lot of the new form input types, you know, input type equals date. Mm-hmm. And the idea is the browser would pop up a calendar widget. Uh, well, Opera does that now, but that's about the only browser that does. With so you're going to have to use... Stick, as you said. With the ugly yeah, stick, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> nasty-looking calendar. Um, so you're going to have to use, you know, some kind of jQuery plugin or whatever to, to generate that that calendar. But you would have to do that anyway today, right? If you if you wanted to have a calendar widget, um, and some other form enhancements like that are kind of along the same lines, like the the placeholder attribute where you can just have a nice bit of placeholder text that disappears when the user tabs into the input. Not all browsers support that, so you're going to have to create a JavaScript fallback. But again, you would have had to do that anyway, even if you weren't using HTML5, if you wanted to get that effect. Um, the nice thing is you can test for the HTML5 support. And say, if the browser understands this, then just back off. And don't, don't do the uh, fallback. If it doesn't, then do it in JavaScript. Um, but like I said, most of these things, you'd probably have to be doing it in JavaScript anyway. Um, some of them you can just throw in and, and not worry about whether or not there's a fallback, like using input type equals search or input type equals email or URL. You might as well you know, start using them. But, yeah, for some of them, you're going to have to have JavaScript fallbacks for a while. Yeah. Uh, I suspect we'll start seeing some libraries to take care of a lot of that stuff where it will just automatically look at your markup and see, is there an input type equals date? If so, generate a calendar if the browser doesn't understand it. You know, I think we'll start to see some standardization there. That, that would be good. We've already got things like Modernizer, which is all about testing for the support and so you can kind of query the browser and find out, do you understand input type equals date? Do you understand placeholder attribute? Things like this. Right. You've got me thinking about a Drupal module that will just handle this. For folks. <laughs> ah, ah, yeah. Now, for Drupal, um, so interesting, I, I was asked to speak at uh, DrupalCon in Copenhagen recently. 
uh, which is interesting because I don't use Drupal. Hands <laughs> on experience. But they, they want to know about HTML5. And actually, I thought it was really good that they were asking somebody from outside their community to sure. speak at a conference, you know, because communities, even, you know, really vibrant open source communities can become echo chambers. I think it is a good idea to get people uh, from outside. So I was, I was concentrating talking about the design principles of HTML5, but what I really wanted to hammer home is that the sectioning content in HTML5, right, section, article, nav, aside, this whole new sort of approach to documents within documents in a way mm-hmm. is really quite a biggie for content management systems. And so for systems like Drupal, it's kind of all based around having these modular pieces of content. I think HTML5 is a, could be a really, really good fit. I mean, not just Drupal, obviously, any kind of framework for content management systems. Um, but I think that's the, that's the area where it is uh, most interest, I think, for, for, for Drupal developers, in my opinion, what I've seen. And there are some Drupal developers that have been looking at, at uh, creating themes um, that use HTML5. And I think the ideas for Drupal 7 or perhaps 8, I think it's 8, Drupal 8 will switch over to using HTML5 by default. Yeah, that question, you sparked that question in my mind, which is, uh, you know, which content management systems out there now are either starting to uh, utilize HTML5 for their own, you know, the programmatically generated output, or or which ones are looking toward it. Um, so it sounds like Drupal will in a near-term release or there, sometime There in the are already Drupal modules that are using HTML5, yeah. Within the module. Like- yeah, there's, there's, there's some people already doing some, some really great work in that area. Uh, Jen Simmons has been been working on some modules, and there's some other people uh, who started up some, some uh, groups, some Drupal groups uh, to talk about it. Do, do you work with any particular CMSs, Jeremy? No, um so at ClearLeft, we're sort of back-end agnostic. We, we made a decision from the start that we wouldn't be a full-service agency. So what we'll do is we'll do you know consulting, we'll do user experience, uh, design, information architecture, uh, visual design, sure, and right up till front-end development, right? We hand over you know templates, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Not every project gets up to that stage, but you know it's one of the skills we, we certainly do in-house. But we deliberately avoided. Um, doing server-side programming. And partly that's because once you make that decision, you kind of have to choose one system and stick to it. There's very few um, agencies that do server-side programming that are completely agnostic as regards what language to use. They tend to be either a a .NET shop or a PHP shop, Ruby on Rails shop. So we didn't want to tie ourselves down. We thought we'd be better to work with with partners. So either the client themselves has a as an in-house team, and they've been using a particular language for years, a particular framework, or we'll work side-by-side side with some other small agency that specializes in a particular framework, like Ruby on Rails or Django or, or whatever. Um, that said, in my spare time, I have dabbled um, with server-side programming. I've done a few projects, mostly with PHP, uh, PHP and MySQL. I've looked around at a few different frameworks like that. There was one time at work where we did decide to do the back end as well as the front end, um, just for budgetary reasons, and then I ended up using Django, mm-hmm. uh, which, was, which was quite an experience. Once I got it all up and running on my Mac, it was fine. Getting it all up and running to begin with was an absolute nightmare for, yeah. for someone who isn't from that kind of you know, um, techie background. Sure. Um, but but it was it was a great framework. So what I liked about Django and what I have a problem with with some other frameworks is Django doesn't try to help you with the front end. Like when it comes to what gets spat out by the 
by the by the system. Mm-hmm. It's completely up to you to create the templates. You must okay. create the HTML, the CMS, the CSS, and, and the JavaScript. Well, that's a good and thing I like if that. you do that well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think I think Django, Django appeals to uh, a lot of front end developers who are familiar with that sort of separation of concerns from from the front end stack, right? Where you've got your structure and your presentation and your behavior. Uh, and Django's kind of enforcing the same thing. Now, other frameworks do that to a certain extent, but then they'll throw in the helpers, right? Trying to right. do a little bit. So Ruby on Rails is, is pretty hands-off, but then they've got these Ajax helpers, right? You just add one little thing, and they'll do the Ajax for you, and it turns out they do it in a really horrible, messy way. <laughs> right. uh, and then you've got frameworks like, like uh, uh, Drupal, where it, it tries to take care of even more, and the, the HTML is kind of, taken care of for you. I guess Drupal is, I, I'm never quite sure whether Drupal is a CMS or a framework or a framework for CMS. <laughs> you have an answer for us? I, I would, uh, well, <laughs> at the risk of yeah, being how... on the record, um, I feel like it's a it's a framework for CMSs, but you can, I mean, there's so much that you can build with it. I, I, I'm very hesitant to call it a CMS directly. There's yeah. Just, there's just so much else you can do with it. And yeah, it, it does spit out the HTML and CSS for you, but because it has such a good separation of the layers, it's very easy to change um, that rendering to, to give yourself to just completely scrap what's what Drupal comes with and build your own. Yeah, if you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, yes. Yeah, right. yeah, that's true. So, um, Jeremy, uh, IE nine beta, I believe, is now out. Have you heard any early reports, or have you played with it yourself at all, as far as how well it's supporting some of the newer HTML five and CSS three uh, features? So I haven't played with myself because I need to update my VMware. I'm still running XP, yeah, I think. Yeah, um, I am too, and I understand that it's only going to run on uh, Windows 7 yeah, or Vista. It's got, it's got to be Vista or uh, Windows 7 mm. for, for i9, partly because I think it's to do with the um, hardware acceleration of the type, the way it's doing the type uh, rendering, um, which is fair enough, you know, it's two operating systems back. So I've got to get around to upgrading my um, VMware, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try it out. But from what I've heard and what I've read, it looks like it's got great support. I think the CSS3 support is actually better than HTML5 support right now. Okay. And also, so a lot of time it really doesn't make sense to talk about HTML5 like this as though it's one thing. It right. makes much more sense to talk about the parts of HTML5. So we could talk about, you know, what's it form support like with the new form elements, or what's it support for um, canvas like, what's the support for audio and video like, right? That that kind of makes sense. But to lump it all in under HTML5 as one big term, um, it, it tends to get fairly useless fairly quickly. But if what I've heard is pretty good, um, certainly we'll be able to use the structural elements and be able to style them without having to do that little JavaScript shim that we have to do now. Um, <laughs> I'd I need to investigate further to see how the, the form stuff is, you know, the input types and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that'll make a big difference if it even supports, you know, one section of HTML5 yeah. well or one, yeah, one one area of it. That would be, anything would be helpful, but given yeah. how frequently IE Internet Explorer versions seem to come out, although 9 is pretty hot on the heels of 8 here, it's not too bad, but I'm really hoping that they have, you know, a fairly broad level of support because it would be it would be great to be able to you know, accelerate our, our approach to using HTML5 and CSS3 across the board. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the plan is to um, to to keep you know doing some more uh, updates fairly regularly. I think they're talking about like nine week cycles. Wow. Uh, keep pushing out um, a, f- a few more updates, which will be great. So this is still a beta. I mean, it's not right. it's not the final browser yet. Which so they 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 still got plenty of time to put to add in uh, more things and. 
the, the, the great thing is that, the, you know, from a philosophical perspective, that they're on board. That, like, that it's not like they're fighting HTML5 or fighting CSS3. They're absolutely on board, and now it's a question of how much they can support in the in the time they've got, which is which is great. It's like it's like we're in a new kind of browser war. We're all competing on who can have the best support for standard. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it kind of goes along with your the chapter one of your book, the history of markup, and how HTML5 actually takes a lot of the stuff like from what browsers are already doing, as opposed to telling browsers what to do. Exactly. I mean, that, that was that was one of the big lessons from XHTML2 was that it was going too far down the road of being the, the theoretical kind of yeah. perfect language that didn't take into account how browsers actually work. And there's so much of HTML5 that's based off how browsers work today. A lot of it is just codifying what browsers already do, um, which is great. I think it's a good pragmatic approach. It's a balancing act, though, um, because if... If you go too far down the road of theoretical purity, making the perfect language, and you end up with something like XHTML2, which is just not feasible. Right. But on the other hand, if you go down, go down too far down the road of just codifying what's already out there, then you end up with nothing but tables and font tags. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we say no. <laughs> Don't let that happen. <laughs> so, so it's got a bit of a, a tightrope to walk, I think, and trying to um, trying to trying to manage both things. Uh, you know, trying to make it pragmatic and practical, but not too scrappy and messy, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to make the best language it can be because it is the most important format out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's doing a pretty good job. There's some areas where I think it's maybe strayed too far in one direction rather than the other, but generally, I think it's doing a pretty good balancing act. So I know, uh, Jeremy, I've heard you speak a, a couple of times, and um, I think one of the points that I, I've heard you make is that even though the browser support for all these features is not widespread necessarily yet, certainly not uniformly, I know that you like to encourage people to start using HTML5 now. Um, is there anything you'd like to say about that to encourage our listeners to, uh, you know, how, how can they get started? What's the best way they, you know, to get started in HTML5 if they're not doing it yet? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say, I mean, my opinion on that the people should start get started now uh, is at odds with uh, other people in the HTML5 community. So Ian Hickson, for example, the editor of the spec, he does not think that people should be... Uh, interesting. Um, but I think they should. And so I, for me, I think the semantics are the best place to start, these new elements, you know, uh, using sections and headers and footers, um, nav, aside, all this stuff. And part of the reason is because it's kind of invisible. It doesn't really matter to the most browsers apart from Internet Explorer and there's a thick workaround for that. It doesn't really matter to a browser whether you're using, you know, section, article, uh, right. or whether you're using an old-fashioned div, like you have to use um, up till now. So it's kind of a, a safe place to start messing around with this stuff. Whereas if you get into the more um, application end of HTML5, there's a lot of JavaScript APIs in there um, to do with, you know, offline storage and, and all this kind of fancy stuff. Then you do need to think about, you know, the browsers that support it, the browsers that don't support it, all this kind of stuff. And there are good stopgap solutions, but you definitely have to think about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you start playing around with the semantics, you don't really have to worry that much about the browser support. As long as you've got IE taken care of, and that's done with one line of uh, JavaScript with a conditional comment. So for me, that's that's a good place to start, is, the, is semantics. Um, and actually, I think you can even, even if you're not quite ready to, to, to start using those elements yet, you know, a, a section, article, the sign, mm-hmm. header. You can still get to grips with the semantics of those elements by taking the names of the elements and using them, for example, as class names. Sure. So you could still be using divs, but you could say div class equals section, div class equals header, div class equals footer, right? So you still got, start to get the feel of structural elements now 
uh, even before making the move to HTML5. Um, And there's still a couple of reasons why I think it's worth writing actual HTML5 documents as in changing your doc type to Mm -hmm. doc type HTML. Um, one of them is that ARIA roles will now validate, which is really nice. Yeah, that's um, interesting to read that in your book. Yeah, so I mean, you can use ARIA roles in any flavor of market. You can use it in HTML4, you can use it in XHTML. Sure, it just doesn't validate, yeah. It just doesn't validate, which isn't a big deal, right? right? I mean, validation isn't, isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, but it's kind of nice now that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can use these ARIA roles um, that browsers understand, that screen readers understand, and we can have our documents validated. So for me, that in itself is enough reason to to switch over to using a new doc type, even if you don't use any of the new elements themselves. And then there's a couple of little things in the form area um, where you might as well start using them. Like I said, input type equals search. You know, In Safari, you get a nice sort of operating system level interface there. Uh, other browsers just fall back to input type equals text, right. so, which is what you would have used Which anyway. is what we're used to handling anyway, exactly. Right. That's so, what we've been doing all so along. So there's a couple of other little things like that where you can start, you know, dipping your toe in the water. But I think generally the semantics are kind of one of the safer areas to start getting to grips with now. Fantastic. Well, I know you have a trip coming up, uh, so we don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, no problem. Do you have uh, one or two things you'd like to, um, one or two reasons you you think people should read your book? Uh, give us the top couple of reasons perhaps that our <laughs> listeners should pick it up and, uh, and dig into it. Um, well, it's a very beautiful book because it's designed by Jason Santamaria. So... Uh, <laughs> For that reason alone, you might want to grab a copy and have it, you know, lying around on the uh, living room table. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's 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 short, so uh, you know you could read it on a on a train journey or a flight. So you won't you're not going to get that feeling of guilt you get with other books, right? Where you start them and then you never, never finish. finish, right? Exactly. exactly. So uh, those those will be my two main reasons it looks pretty and it's short <laughs> i love it well i did i did have one more question i was wondering if there's something maybe in the um like the employment contract at clear left that you have to write a book <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i know yeah, that james and kenneth just came out with another book uh, one of their that's books, right. right yeah and then yeah he, so yeah they, they were pretty stressed out during the writing as you can imagine it's 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 like i don't know it's it's, it's kind of like it's, the it's web design world converges upon brighton you know, you know, you, you joke, but Brighton has a, a bizarrely high number of geeks. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty weird considering the size of the town. It's not that big a place, but it's uh, it's really got the scene here in Brighton. There was a bar camp uh, here just last weekend, which is fantastic. And there's there's something going on every night. I mean, there's like a, there's a Flash Brighton group. There's a there's now there's a JavaScript meetup every two weeks. Nice. Um, there's like a UX Brighton group. There's there's lots going on. It's it's pretty great place to be. And there's lots of good cross-pollinization. So, you know, yeah. I'll end up chatting to somebody who's uh, developing iPhone apps or somebody who's a Flash programmer or somebody who's doing something that's, you know, related to the web but not maybe the same kind of stuff I would normally come into contact with. Mm, that's great. That's, yeah, it's really good cross-pollinization. That's there. great. Yeah, that's, that's a sign of a very robust community, I think. Have you ever been to Fort Collins or to Colorado? I have not been to Fort Collins. I have think I think I have been to Colorado on a road trip uh-huh. many, many, many years uh, ago. Well, you should come back sometime. We've got a great web community here too, and uh, we'd love to have you uh, in person if you ever make it out this way. So and maybe we I can... might just take you up on that. You yeah, know? The, I, the IA Summit is going to be in Denver this next year. That's right. And uh, That's right. IXDA is in Boulder. 
Yeah, both of them are so, in Colorado right, in 2011. Right, Action 11, yeah. So. And maybe you can uh, twist Jeremy uh, Zellman's arm and see if he can get a, an event apart to come to Denver at some point as well. That could be fun. Well, it seems like every, everyone else is going to Colorado. So why should we then right? <laughs> That's right. You don't want to lag behind. <laughs> you want to be at the leading edge of things. So you can set the leading edge and make a conference in Fort Collins. There you yeah. go. There we go. <laughs> Buck the trend. Start making Fort Collins the center of the web universe. There we go. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you taking uh, taking some time to chat with us and talk about your book. Um, we loved it, and we hope our readers, uh, our listeners do as well. So, Yeah, awesome. My pleasure. All right, I'll have a safe trip, uh, Jeremy, and I uh, look forward to seeing you again sometime down the road. All right, thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye. We want to remind you, if you haven't gotten your copy of the book, we don't get any money from this at all, just disclosure. Um, but it's at books.alistapart.com, or I got my copy actually on the iTunes iBooks store. Just search for it there, and you can have it. Uh, you can have the Dead Tree version or the... Uh, I love Earth electronic version. <laughs> <laughs> on which device did you read it? I read it on the iPhone. Oh, oh really? wow! Yeah, well, and your actually, eyesight must be great. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have an iPad yet to read it oh, upon, okay. and then apparently you can read iBooks on the Mac if you go through some jump through some hoops. But I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't bother. <laughs> We're excited to announce that we actually have a podcast sponsor. And it's audible.com. Yay! Um, Audible, I know they sponsor a lot of podcasts um, here and there, but it really is the place to get audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. And I personally have been a subscriber since about 2002, um, back when I lived in Oklahoma, because I drove a whole lot and got to listen to something. And (laughs) And at two books a month, that's about 230 books, if math serves me correctly, that I've listened to. Wow. And it's really good stuff. And um, so visit audiblepodcast.com slash Einstein, and if you have a problem spelling Einstein, you have a problem. <laughs> so, we're not biased or anything. But, and I didn't, I didn't let Ron know about this ahead of time, but I thought it would be nice to give a, a couple book picks real quick. Um, I know a lot of folks give the book picks. We're going to do a nonfiction and a fiction pick today, because sometimes I want to listen to something fun and, and brainless, and sometimes I want to listen to something useful. Um, but the nonfiction pick is Nudge by uh, Thaler and Sunstein, and it if you for if you are a user experience designer or a designer really of any kind, you have to read Nudge. It's the subtitle is Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, which is really a bad Sounds subtitle. Yeah. It, it, it's a bad subtitle. What what they really talk about is um, nudging people in the right direction to make the get them to make the decision you want them to make. Oh, okay, sure. And so a lot of that is about, they have, they spend a lot of time about talking about um, setting the right defaults and which default options are really important in UX design and web design because people are going to choose the default option most of the time. Right. And um, so that's an awesome book, uh, well-read, hmm. um, which if you have not listened to audio, audible books before, make sure you preview the audio first because sometimes the reader is horrible. Right. But that's very rare. But this reader is pretty good. This is re- good, really good reader. And the other one is um, a, l- a lot of fun. It's called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter <laughs> by Seth Graham Smith. And he's the same guy who wrote um, Sense and Sensibility and Zombies. Okay. Where is it? No, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and then Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. <laughs> oh and But this is actually, this is not a takeoff of a book. It's actually, he, 
he went through Abraham Lincoln's life and little do we know that he was actually a vampire hunter the whole time. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's actually a really wow. good book. That's not book. a kid's book? This is an adult No, no, not a kid's book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do not let your child listen to this book. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, uh, if you go to the audiblepodcast.com slash Einstein, you get a free book for signing up mm-hmm. and you help us out a little bit. So. Very cool. And that is, I see the link here in the show notes. It's audiblepodcast.com. Yes, sorry. Audiblepodcast. You didn't say that, but okay. I always just, I've, I've been a subscriber for years and years and years and also, and right. I just think audible.com. But right. I realize it's audiblepodcast.com. So our next segment is our social media minute, which is uh, read by the infamous Nick Armstrong, who can be found at I'm Nick Armstrong on Twitter. So here we go with the social media minute. Thanks, guys. I'm Nick Armstrong, and this is your social media minute. You know what really makes me mad? Cats. Moving on to social media news, Twitter and Facebook recently updated their privacy settings, meaning that on Twitter, programs can no longer ask you for your username or password and store these indefinitely as a method of accessing your account. Instead, they have to have an API key. This goes beyond simple OAuth authentication, the kind you see with the allow and the deny button when you try and access your Twitter account with a third-party tool. This new security setting has four keys that have to be enabled before account access is allowed, making all your tweets about your cat much more secure. If you want to see which programs are able to access your Twitter account, all you have to do is go to Settings and then to Connections, and there you can even disallow access for certain programs if you've forgotten what they were used for. Facebook has a similar privacy setting, which is found under Account, Privacy, and then Applications. You can see which third-party websites and tools have access to your account information, but be careful because turning some of these off might disable certain features of things that you were used to. Alternately, you could be giving way too much information out online, like those pictures of the kegger headstand that you were at last summer. And in case you don't remember, I was there. You were really drunk. I'm Nick Armstrong, and that's it for your Social Media Minute. It's time for more hair-raising experiments with Einstein and Sock Monkey. Back to you guys. Now that we're, we're going to share our blogs, <laughs> our blog picks of the week. John, go ahead. Well, I remember that the, the first uh, blog of the week pick that you featured was 52 Weeks of UX. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And the one that I totally love reading because it's concise and still has a lot of insight sort of ties into that. And it's called uxmyths.com. Mm-hmm. And their tagline is debunking user experience misconception. It's a good plug. And what they, what they do is they state a common UI or UX related myth, explain why they think it's wrong in one or two paragraphs, and provide a list of commented links to articles on the net that support their, um, their assessment. Um, just to give you a few examples, the, there are some that are more obvious, like design is about making a website look good. And uh, if, if you do anything <laughs> beyond visual design, you know how hard it is to describe that that is not what you're doing if you're a designer. Uh, then there's, if it works for Amazon, it will work for you. Oh, my goodness. Or yes. more choices or and no. features <laughs> result in higher satisfaction. And if you've seen the TED Talk by Barry Schwartz or read his book, um, the paradox of choice mm-hmm. you just know that more choice is definitely not necessarily right. the better User way experience, yeah. exactly and, and but but they also have some some myths that are let's say more thought-provoking more controversial so one of my favorites is you don't need the content to design a website hmm. yes but if you look at a blog and just compare that to say youtube <clears throat> you know text versus video you know that you have to know what the content looks like is it uh, just a few paragraphs of text and a big video? 
Is it plain text that is very long? Is it just videos? You have to know what the content looks like to the design. And uh, to do it fact, well. Yeah. To do it well. <laughs> well, you can design something. Yeah, but... you can design something. Exactly. That's something that we run up against with clients all the oh, time. Yeah. Is, you know, we really want the content because our designers will include the copy as part of the design. Mm-hmm. You know, Especially for the homepage or really key pages, you know, the top right. page in each section. That content's really important because you may have uh, you know nice pull quotes that you can pull out and you know have a uh, style them really nicely or incorporate into graphic elements as part of the design that just really make a site head and shoulders above others. So mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. it's really important to have final content for at least key sections. Mm-hmm. Speaking of content, I, I picked their myth number one and let me read out what they write. So the myth that they started with was people read on the web. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it is a myth. I mean, what, what they explain is this. People only read word by word on the web when they are really interested in the content. They usually skim the pages looking for highlighted keywords, meaningful headings, short paragraphs, and scannable lists. Since they're in a hurry to find the very piece of information they're looking for, they'll skip what's irrelevant for them. Mm-hmm. So don't expect people to read content that seems neither easily scannable nor relevant for them. Therefore, long text blocks, unnecessary instructions, promotional writing, and small talk should be avoided on the web. And I gotta say, I don't really agree with them a hundred percent because there there is so much great content out there that you do read. Well, maybe you don't read it on the web because if you're a savvy internet citizen, you read it in Instapaper or something like that. <laughs> right. So, still, yeah. uh, of course. It, they're right in the sense that you don't read it in a web browser, most likely. Mm-hmm. But don't take that as meaning that you shouldn't write extensive articles sure. because that would be the wrong reaction to that design myth. Right. So great website. That sounds like a great website to direct it's, clients to as well. Oh yes, they're the ones that have you know often <laughs> totally. often have a, a few misconceptions. Especially since they also give so much information that backs up their view. It's not just stating we don't ag- agree with with this myth, but Here's it's why. we don't agree. And here's why. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a great way to educate clients. Yeah, absolutely. And you can find that blog at uxmyths.com. It's uxmyths.com. Sweet. I will check that out. So my blog of the week is not actually a blog, um, but it's a conference directory called Lanyard, which is L-A-N-Y-R-D, as in lanyard, like the thing you wear around your neck at a conference with your badge on it. Um, and you know, one of the th- focuses of our podcast is uh, we're very much into conferences on web design and user experience, and uh, this is a great resource for finding out about conferences all over the world on whatever topic you're interested in in the tech world. Uh, so they include not only conferences, but in their own words here, pretty much anything with at least one speaker. So they call them conferences, <laughs> but you can add workshops, unconferences, evening events with talks, conventions, and so forth. So it's geared toward knowledge sharing events that have sessions and participants of some sort. And it is fantastic. I mean, if you just uh, take a quick look um, and search through, you can search by location in the search box or by topic, um, you know, general area of interest. And it is just astounding how many conferences there are. And I'll bet you'll find some close to you that you didn't even know existed. So Mm -hmm. I encourage you to check it out. uh, List your conferences and events there and um, share them with everybody else. Yeah, I think I've seen this before. Now that that I'm looking at it, it looks familiar. Hmm. This is really cool. 350 conferences listed in the U.S., 218 in the U.K., and 982 worldwide. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. A lot of conferences. And you can find them on Twitter at... uh, 
L-A-N-Y-R-D as well. Cool. Um, well, the blog that I picked for the week is actually kind of a good source for design inspiration. It has nothing to do with design or anything like that. Um, it's mikasaesukasa.tumblr.com. <laughs> and I don't speak Spanish, so I hope I butchered that correctly. Um, but um, what it is, is uh, as the name hints at, it's pictures of homes. Hmm. A lot of t- a lot of them inside and out. A lot of really great uh-huh. designs. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome interior design. The, the the thing that I like about it for design inspiration is the use of space. Um, the colors that are put together that I would never thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, textures, shapes, things like that. Like um, I'm looking at one right now. It looks like kind of this uh, sort of a gothic room and and like Edwardian style fancy stuff. And on the floor, there's like these really modern couches and stuff, and it looks great together. You know, things like that I would never expect. So I would check that out. It's mikasaesukasa.tumblr.com. Of course, all these are going to be in the show notes. But design inspiration is always good to uh, find wherever you can. Well, uh, as we're closing out, thanks for listening. And especially thanks to Josh uh, for taking care of all the show notes for us. And to Nick for his social media minute, and for today, for uh, thank you to the Cohere co-working space here in Fort Collins for letting us record in their wonderful facilities. Um, Angel, the uh, the curator here, is very uh, gracious and, and helped us out. And you can find them at coherecommunity.com. So visit our website, einsteinandsockmonkey.com. Uh, and please do subscribe to us on iTunes. So you can find us easily there with a search on Einstein or Sock Monkey, Zeldman, <laughs> Jeremy <laughs> Keith, <Yeah. laughs> all kinds of things you'll yeah. find us. And uh, if you do like the podcast, the best way you can uh, help others find out about us is to make a comment and rate us in iTunes. So we would be forever grateful if you do that. And be sure when you visit the website, EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com, please do post some comments on the blog there. Um, that would be great. And there is a link directly to the iTunes store from our website as well. Right. Makes it, make it easy. One click to subscribe. Yeah. So um, you can find me at uh, clevercubed.com is my blog and at clevercubed on Twitter. And you can find me, Ron Zazadinsky, at uh, at Ron underscore Z on Twitter and on the web at codegeek.net. And you can find my blog at uiobservatory.com. Cool. And that's right. <laughs> that is right. It's going to be a Twitter handle, but it's really hard. So we'll, that's in yeah, the we'll, we'll include that in the show notes. Okay. Everything's in the show notes. Everything's in the show notes. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency. And clevercubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture. And presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at blacklabworld.com. <laughs>